Section 2 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Richard Wagner, Modern Music, Part 2. So far all seemed well, but disappointments soon began to overshadow his seeming good luck. The first production of The Flying Dutchman can hardly be called a success. Wagner himself characterized the performance as being in its main features, a complete failure, and the stage setting, incredibly awkward and wooden. Very different from what it is in Dresden today. Madame Schroeder d'Evriant was an admirable senta and received enthusiastic applause, but the opera itself puzzled the audience rather than pleased it. The music lovers of Dresden had expected another opera a la Meyerbeer, like Rienzi, with its arios and duos, its din and its dances, its pomps and processions, its scenic and musical splendors. Instead of that, they heard a work utterly unlike any opera ever before written, an opera without arias, duets, and dances, without any of the glitter that had theretofore entertained the public, an opera that simply related a legend in one breath, as it were, like a dramatic ballad, an opera that indulged in weird chromatic scales, harsh but expressive harmonies, with an unprecedented license. Here was the real Wagner, but even in this early and comparatively crude and simple phase, Wagner was too novel and revolutionary to be appreciated by his contemporaries. Hence it is not to be wondered at that the fine Dutchman, after four performances in Dresden and a few in Kassel and Berlin, disappeared from the stage for ten years. Although Wagner was now royal conductor, he did not succeed in securing a revival of this opera at Dresden. His next work, Tannhauser, was nevertheless promptly accepted. The score was completed on April 13, 1845, and six months later, October 19th, the first performance was given. Wagner had thrown himself with all his soul into the composition of this score. To a friend in Berlin he wrote, this opera must be good, or else I never shall be able to do anything worthwhile. The public at first seemed to agree with him. Seven performances were given before the end of the season, and it was resumed the following year. Yet Wagner came to the conclusion that he had written the opera for a few intimate friends, but not for the public, to cite his own words. What the public had expected and desired was shown by its enthusiastic reception of Rienzi and its colder treatment of the Dutchman. But Tannhauser was like the second opera in fact, even more so. Wagner had outlived the time when he was willing to make concessions to current taste and fashion. Thenceforth, he went his own way, eager indeed for approval, but stubbornly refusing to win it by sacrificing his high art ideals. Here was true heroism, genuine manliness. Had he been willing to write more operas like Rienzi, he might have reveled in wealth. He loved wealth, and basked in the sunshine of popularity like Meyerbeer but not one inch of concession did he make for the sake of the much-coveted riches and popular favor. Yet was not his next work, Lohengrin, of a popular character? Popular today, yes, but in the days of his Dresden conductorship, he could not even get it accepted for performance at his own opera house. It was completed in August 1847, the last act having been written first and the second last. But although he remained in Dresden two years longer, all his efforts to get it staged failed for various reasons. 
and when at last Liszt gave it for the first time on August 28, 1850 at Weimar, whence it gradually made its way to other opera houses, its reception everywhere showed that it was very far from being considered a popular work. The critics especially vied with one another in abusing this same Lohengrin, which at present is sung more frequently than any other opera, and they continued to abuse it until about twenty years ago. An abyss of ennui, void of all melody, an insult to the very essence of music, a caricature of music, algebraic harmonies, no tangible ideas, not a dozen bars of melody, an opera without music, an incoherent mass of rubbish, are a few of the critical opinions passed on this opera, which is now regarded in all countries as a very wonderland of beautiful melodies and expressive harmonies. The non-acceptance in Dresden of this glorious opera, concerning which Wagner wrote, It is the best thing I have done so far, was only one of many trials and disappointments which daily harassed him. He was head over ears in debt because, in his confidence in the immediate success of his operas, he had them printed at once, at his own expense. The opera houses were very slow in accepting them, and this left him in a sad predicament. There were, moreover, enemies everywhere, ignorant old-fashioned professionals who objected to his way of interpreting the masters, though it was afterwards admitted that he was epic-making as an interpreter of their deepest thoughts. All this galled him, and furthermore, no attention whatever was paid to his pet plans for reforming the Dresden Opera and theatrical matters in general. In a state of mind brought about by this condition of affairs, it needed but a firebrand to start an explosion. This firebrand was supplied by the revolutionary uprising of 1849. Now, although Wagner had never really cared much for politics, to his friend Fisher he once wrote, I do not consider true art possible unless politics cease to exist, he was foolish enough to believe that a general overturning of affairs would benefit art matters too, and facilitate his operatic reforms. So he became, as he himself admits, a revolutionist in behalf of the theater. He actively assisted the insurgents, and the consequence was that when the rebellion failed, he had to leave Dresden and seek safety in flight. Three of the leaders of the insurrection, Rokel, Bakkenen, and Huber, personal friends of Wagner, were captured and imprisoned. He himself was so lucky as to escape to Weimar, where Franz Liszt took care of him. It so happened that Liszt, who had given up his career as a concert pianist, though all the world was clamoring to hear him, and was conducting the Weimar Opera, had been preparing a performance of Tannhauser, to which Wagner would, under normal conditions, have been invited as a matter of course. He was now there, but as a political fugitive, wherefore it was not deemed advisable to have him attend the public performance but he did secretly witness a rehearsal and was delighted to find that Liszt's genius had enabled him to penetrate into the innermost recesses of this music. It was impossible, however, for him to stay any longer. The Dresden police had issued a warrant for the arrest of the royal Kappermeister Richard Wagner, who was to be placed on trial for active participation in the riots which have taken place here. No time, therefore, was to be lost. Late in the evening of May 18th, Liszt's noble patroness, the Princess Wittgenstein, received this note from him. Can you give the bearer 60 thalers? Wagner is obliged to fly, and I cannot help him at this moment. Early the next morning, Wagner, provided with a false pass, left Weimar and headed for Switzerland, which was to be his home for the greater part of the following 12 years of his exile from Germany. 
Had he been caught like his friends and like them imprisoned during these years, it is not likely that the world would now possess the seven monuments of his ripest genius, Rheingold, Diewalkery, Siegfried, Gotterdammerung, Tristan and Isolde, Die Meistersinger, and Parsifal. Even as it was, the world has undoubtedly lost an immortal opera or two through his unfortunate participation in the rebellion. For during the first four years of his exile, he did not compose any music. He reasoned that he had written four good operas and nobody seemed to want them. Why, therefore, should he compose any more? At the same time, he realized that there were natural reasons why his operas were not understood. They were written in such a novel style, both vocal and instrumental, that the singers, players, and conductors found it difficult to perform them correctly, the consequence being that they did not specially impress the audiences, which, moreover, were bewildered by finding themselves listening to works so radically different from what they had been accustomed to in the opera houses. In the hope of remedying this state of affairs, Wagner devoted several years to writing essays in which he explained his aims and ideals for the benefit both of performers and listeners. Little attention was, however, paid to these essays, and although they are valuable aesthetic treatises, most lovers of Wagner would gladly give them for the operas he might have written in the same time. Operas uniting the characteristics of Lohengrin and the Valkyrie. Wagner's letters to Liszt and other friends show that he suffered tortures and was often brought to the verge of suicide by the thought that as a political refugee he was unable to go to Germany to superintend the production of his works. His one consolation was that, as he put it, through the friendship of Liszt, his art had found a home at Weimar at the moment when he himself became homeless. Weimar became, as it were, a sort of preliminary Beirut to which pilgrimages were made to hear Wagner's operas. Liszt not only produced The Flying Dutchman, Tannhauser, and Lohengrin, but wrote eloquent essays on them and in every possible way advanced the good cause. It has been justly said that by his efforts he accelerated the vogue of Wagner's operas fully ten years. He also helped him pecuniarily and induced others to do the same. Never in the world's history has one artist done so much for another as Liszt did for Wagner during all the years of his exile in Switzerland. Few persons would consider residence in Switzerland, the usual home in those days of political refugees, a special hardship, nor would Wagner have considered it in that light except for the solicitude he felt for the children of his brain. Otherwise, he greatly enjoyed life in that glorious country, and the alpine ozone nourished and stimulated his brain. Moreover, from the creative point of view, it was an actual advantage for him to be away from the opera houses of the great capitals. In Switzerland, except for a short time when he was connected with the Zurich Opera, he heard no operatic music except such as his own brain created. Undoubtedly, this helps to account for the astounding originality of the music dramas he wrote in Switzerland. These music dramas go as far beyond Lohengrin, in certain directions, as Lohengrin goes beyond the operas of Wagner's predecessors. It was a reckless thing to do, to make another such giant stride before the world had caught up with his first— and he had to suffer the consequences. But genius disregards prudence and looks to the future alone. What he was now writing was what his enemies tauntingly called the music of the future, because as they said, nobody liked it at present. But what he himself called the artwork of the future, in which all the fine arts are inseparably united. The biggest of his works, the Nibelung Tetralogy, was conceived and for the most part written in Switzerland. Before leaving Dresden, he had already written the poem of an opera which he called Siegfried's Death. 
Returning to this in his exile, he came to the conclusion, gradually, that the legend on which it is based, and which he had sketched out in prose at the beginning, contained material for two, three, nay, four operas. Accordingly, he wrote the poems of these, first Gotter Damerung, then Siegfried, Die Valkyrie, and Rheingold. The music to these four dramas was, however, composed in the reverse order in which they were to be performed. Wagner indulged in no illusions regarding these music dramas. He knew that they were beyond the capacity of even the best royal opera houses of that time, and that they could be performed only under exceptional conditions, such as he finally succeeded, after Herculean efforts and many disappointments, in securing at Beirut in 1876. It is of great interest to note that the germs of a sort of Beirut festival plan can be found in his letters as early as 1850, the year when Lohengrin had its first hearing. Thus a full quarter of a century elapsed between the conception of this festival plan and its execution. But Wagner had the patience of Job as well as his capacity for suffering. Amid privations of all sorts, he wrote the sublime music of these dramas, beginning with Rheingold, on November 1, 1853, the first time he had put new operatic melodies on paper since the completion of Lohengrin in August 1847. In his head, to be sure, he had been carrying much of the Nibelung music for some time, for he habitually created his leading melodies at the same time as the verse, and the four Nibelung poems were in print in 1853. On May 8, 1854, the score of Rheingold was completed. Four weeks later, he began the sketches of The Valkyrie, the completed score of which was in his desk by the end of March 1856. In the meantime, his poverty had compelled him, much against his wishes, to accept an offer from the London Philharmonic Society to conduct their concerts for a season, March to June 1855. He had reason to bitterly regret this action. With the limited number of rehearsals at his command, it was impossible for him to make the orchestra follow his intentions and reveal his greatness as a conductor. He was not allowed to make the programs, and the directors, ignorant of the fact that they had engaged the greatest musical genius of the century, gave no Wagner concert and put only a few short selections from his early operas on the programs. Thus his hopes of creating a desire for the hearing of his complete operas, which had been one of his motives in going to London, were frustrated. He was, moreover, constantly abused for doing things differently from Mendelssohn, and the leading critics referred to his best music as senseless discord, inflated display of extravagance and noise, and so on. Almost the only pleasant episode was the sympathy and interest of Queen Victoria, who had a long talk with him and informed him that his music had enraptured her. For all this trouble and loss of time, he found himself unable in London to do any satisfactory work on the uncompleted Valkyrie score, he received the munificent sum of $1,000, considerably less than many Wagner singers today get for one evening's work. Shortly before leaving London, he wrote to a friend that he would bring home about 200 francs, $40. For this, he had wasted four months of precious time and endured endless contrarieties and vulgar animosities, to use his own words. Equally unsuccessful were his efforts, a few years later, to better himself financially by a series of concerts in Paris, 1860. They resulted in a large deficit. Nor was he benefited by the performance of his Tannhauser, which were given at the Grand Opera in March 1861, by order of Napoleon, at the request of the influential Princess Metternich. He had refused to interpolate a vulgar ballet in the second act for the benefit of the members of the aristocratic jockey club, who dined late and insisted on having a ballet on entering the opera house. 
They took the revenge by creating such a disturbance every evening that after the third performance, Wagner refused to allow any further repetitions, although the house on the third night had been completely sold out. He was to receive $50 for each performance. The result was $150, or less than 50 cents a day, for a year's hard work and no end of worry in connection with the rehearsals. How many men are there in the annals of art who would have refused, after all these disappointments and bitter lessons, to make some concessions? Wagner was writing a gigantic work, the Nibelung Tetralogy, which he was convinced would never yield a penny's profit during his lifetime. Sometimes despair seized him. In one of his letters he exclaims, Why should I, poor devil, burden and torture myself with such terrible tasks if the present generation refuses to let me have even a workshop? Yet the only deviation he made from his plan was that when he had reached the second act of the third of the Nibling dramas, the poetic Siegfried, in June 1857, he made up his mind to abandon the tetralogy for the time being and to compose an opera which might be performed separately and once more bring him into contact with the stage. This opera was Tristan and Isolde, but instead of being a concession, it turned out to be the most difficult and Wagnerian of all his works. An opera with much emotion, but little action, no processions or choruses such as Lohengrin still had, and of course no arias or tunes whatever. Tristan and Isolde was completed in 1859, and Wagner would have much preferred to have its performance in Paris commanded by Napoleon in place of Tannhauser. What the jockey club would have done in that case is inconceivable, for, compared with Tristan, Tannhauser is almost Meyerbeerian, if not Donizettian. No singers, moreover, could have been found in Paris able to interpret this work with its new vocal style, speech song, as the Germans call it. Even Germany could do nothing at first with this opera. In Vienna, after 54 rehearsals, it was abandoned in 1863 as impossible, and that city did not produce it till after Wagner's death. Instead of bringing him into immediate contact with the stage, it was not heard anywhere till seven years after its completion. There was one more card for him to play. All his operas so far had been tragedies. What if he were to write a comic opera? Would not that be likely to get him access to the stage again and help him financially? He had the plot for a comic opera. Indeed, he had sketched it as early as 1845, at the same time as the plot of Lohengrin. Sixteen years it lay dormant in his brain. At last he wrote out the poem in Paris, immediately after the Tannhauser disaster there. Perhaps it would be more accurate to call Die Meistersinger a humorous opera, for while the story of the medieval knight who wins the goldsmith's daughter has comic features, its chief characteristic is humor with that undercurrent of seriousness that belongs to all masterpieces of humor. To a certain extent, it is a musical and poetic autobiography, the victorious young knight Walter, who sings as he pleases, without regard to pedantic rules, representing Wagner himself and the music of the future, while the vain and malicious Beckmesser stands for the critics and Hans Sachs for the enlightened public opinion. It was during the time that he wrote the gloriously melodious and spontaneous music to this poem that the most important event of his life happened. Work on the score was repeatedly interrupted by the necessity of making some money. Most of his concerts in German cities undertaken for this purpose did not yield him any profits. In Russia, however, he was very successful, and as he had the promise of a repetition of his success, he rented a fine villa at Penzing, near Vienna, and proceeded to enjoy life for a change. Who can blame him for this? As he said to a friend not long after this, 
I am differently organized from others, have sensitive nerves, must have beauty, splendor, and light. Is it really such an outrageous thing if I lay claim to the little bit of luxury which I like, I who am preparing enjoyment for the world and for thousands? Unfortunately, the second Russian project failed, through no fault of his own, and as he had borrowed money at usurious rates on his expected profits, he found himself compelled to fly once more from his creditors. After spending a short time in Switzerland, he went to Stuttgart, where he persuaded his friend Weisheimer to go with him to the Swabian Alps, where he intended to hide for half a year until he could finish his Meistersinger, and with the score, raise money for his creditors. The wagon had already been ordered for the next morning, May 3, 1864, and Wagner was packing his trunk when a card was brought to him with the inscription, Von Fistenmeister, Secretaire Olique de S.M. Leroy de Bavier, and the message that the Baron came by the order of the King of Bavaria was very anxious to see him. King Ludwig II of Bavaria had declared, while he was still crowned prince, that as soon as he became king, he would show the world how highly he held the genius of Wagner in honor. He kept his word. One of his first acts was to dispatch Baron von Fistenmeister to search for Wagner and not to return without him. He was to tell him that the king was his most ardent admirer, that he wanted him to come at once to Munich, to live there in comfort at the king's expense, to complete his Nibelung operas, and to produce them forthwith. Was it a wonder that when the baron had left, Wagner, who was thus suddenly raised from the depth of despair, he had even meditated suicide, to the height of happiness, fell on Weisheimer's neck and wept for joy. End of section 2